everyone. So we are starting. Hello, God, that light's really bright. Uh, welcome to the Book Jam. Unfortunately, Doc, who usually compares, can't be here today as he's up north visiting his ancestral homelands. Uh, but it says hello, and I'm going to compare instead, so wish me luck, because I don't usually do this. Uh, welcome to Book Jam, uh, October Book Jam. Uh, there's lots of books for sale at the back, and the first reader can't stay all the way through the night, so if you'd like her to sign any of her books, you have to get her straight off to the end of the first interval. Uh, so the first reader we have today is Chrissy Gittins. She lives in Forest Hill. She writes poetry, short fiction, and radio plays, and has 13 published works. Her short story collection, Between Here and Knitwear, was chosen by Helen Dunmore as one of the two best short story collections of 2015, and described as exceptional in the Sunday Times. Chrissy's work is featured in the Poetry Archive and the British Council Writers' Directory. So may I introduce to you Chrissy Gittins. Thank you very much indeed for that wonderful introduction. I've been told to take my coat off because if I don't, it looks like I'm not stopping. And thank you Zelda and her team for putting together this wonderful evening. I'm going to read from Between Here and Knitwear, which is nothing to do with jumpers. It's a phrase that my father came up with when he was suffering from dementia. It's a collection of 22 linked short stories, semi-autobiographical, which go from primary school to the sale of a parental home. And I'm going to read from one in the middle of the book, which is called Our Love is Here to Stay, which is set in a village in Ramsbottom, sorry, in Lancashire called Ramsbottom. In the recess by the stone fireplace, Mum kept a framed photograph of herself. She was in her early 20s, sitting with her legs stretched out on a beach towel, lithe, tanned and relaxed. Behind her rise the dunes and marram grass of Formby. She is wearing her brown and turquoise harlequin shorts, which still lay folded in her ottoman, and a V-neck white sleeveless top slipped over her shoulders. Her brilliant smile is the smile of a young woman who has time to be warmed by the sun, to waggle her toes, and finger the leaf motif on her towel whilst her handsome young man focuses the camera. I look at that photograph sometimes when I'm sitting here, she said. For the first time, I had the sense of her life being arrested while she took a backward glance. Was it with regret, with yearning? I can't sit in the sun now because of the lithium I didn't know what to say to this pleasure chipped away. She also couldn't take strong painkillers for her osteoarthritis for the same reason. It was a cold, damp September day. There's not much sun today, she said, 
The days are getting shorter, I said. I could do with a piece of elastic on each day. I'll pull some out of me knickers. I got up to go to the kitchen. I'll make some tea, I said. There's Eccles cakes in the Choreen. The green pool pottery one with the mushrooms on the lid. That's the one. I took the tea through. Mum was squirming in her chair. I've got thrush, she said. How are, you, how are you treating it? With calamine lotion. I'm wearing two pairs of knickers and a panty girdle. Don't you need to let the air in? Mum didn't answer. Is your new television all right? I asked. Oh, yes, it is. We're very pleased with it. But I don't think that Kate Aidy's ever coming back. She's always at some war or other. Have you been watching Portrait of a Marriage? Oh, yes, said Mum. Janet McTeer's very tall, isn't she? Mum nodded. It made me think I should have a pair of jobpers. So I went in that riding shop in Bridge Street. I'd picked up my Eccles cake, but I put it down again without taking a bite. You didn't. The one with the full-sized horse in the window? They didn't have my size, so I bought a red waistcoat instead, she said triumphantly. So now you've got a red waistcoat, red boots and a red hat. And a red handbag. Mum took a gulp of tea. I left Dad walking up and down Bridge Street. He was proper blazing when I came out. Oh dear, were they nice to you in the shop? She asked if I had a horse. What did you say? I said I'd borrow one. Then she said, was I interested in things equestrian? What did you say? I said I'd just cantered. Mom? I picked up my Eccles cake again. I can't believe you. It's true. I do like listening to the sound of your voice, apart from what you tell me, I said. I was once told I had timbre in my voice. Dad came to join us. As he fell back into the sofa, his legs flew up into the air. Steady, said Mum. Is there a cup of tea for me, he asked. Here, there's your favourite, Dad, Eccles cakes. I handed him a cup and a plate. He struggles a bit now with his false teeth, said Mum. I had cheese and biscuits the other night, he said. It was like eating a grand piano with the lid up. They lived under permanent siege. The bungalow was in the corner of a cul-de-sac. Each time a car drove by, they checked to see who it was. Each time the security light came on at the front of the bungalow, they checked for prowlers. Each time there was a noise they didn't understand, Dad would jump up and see if it was a cause for concern. Do you still go to your Masonic meetings, Dad? No, I don't like to leave your mum. You've been to one or two, said Mum indignantly. I remember going through the Ottoman when I was little and coming across your Masonic apron in a leather case. 
Yes, and you didn't pack it up properly, said Dad. You knew. Of course I knew. The Masons, said Mum. I've had more support from my knitting group. And I found some rubber tubing with a rubber balloon at the end, I said. That was for expressing milk, said Mum. Oh, is that what it was? I thought it was some early form of contraception. Dad laughed. We've been married for 40 years now, said Mum with pride and disbelief. I think we've learned compassion and how to look after each other, said Dad. There's things I think we'd both have changed. Dad worked too hard and I could have had a career. Did you feel as though you were pushed into looking after children, asked Dad. No, I enjoyed that. But after they left home, 20 years ago now, Dad said wistfully. We talk more now. I can't imagine being with anyone but your mum. A gust of wind rasped through the beech and hawthorn trees in the garden. Dad pulled himself up off the sofa. He collected the crockery onto the tray and ate a stray currant from the Eccles cakes. I'll do the washing up. After he closed the door to the room, Mum said conspiratorially, I didn't tell you. He's getting very forgetful. Anyway, I never met anybody else. I've not even been away for a weekend on my own. In the evening, Mum would fall asleep first in her chair, followed by Dad. They'd wake and drop off, wake and drop off. Is it time for bed now, Mum? I'd ask. Just a few more minutes. It's only nine o'clock. Have I missed Coronation Street? Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Chrissy. Great opening for the show. Um, so next we have Patrice Lawrence. He's right here. Patrice was born in Brighton to Caribbean parents and now lives in London. She's been writing ever since she could, and she's published works on equality and rights, as well as short stories for adults and children. You can find out more about Patrice at patricelawrence.wordpress.com, and there's quite a few set lists on the bookshop if anyone wants to know more about the writers that are reading today. Right, good evening. Um, I had to have a bit of a think about what I was going to read from my book, Orange Boy, because there's actually a bit that set... As I was walking up from the tube station to come here, Marlon, who's the hero in here, makes exactly the same journey. But I thought, hmm, no, I'm going to read the hackney bit. Um, Orange Boy is my first, I suppose, proper novel. And basically, I went on a crime-writing course at Arvon, planning to write a um, crime novel set in 1940s Trinidad with a 43-year-old woman who was the amateur detective, and I came out with a 16-year-old kid from Hackney. But in the end, he got me a book deal, so thank you. I'll try not to move too much, but I grew up with an Italian stepdad, so I'm kind of used to gesticulating. So, so glasses off. 
Right, here it goes. Ma'am, I couldn't stop looking at her. When I closed my eyes, I still saw her. Her hair was thick and blonde, and a curl looped over her ear to her shoulder. She wore black mascara and green eyeliner, and her lips looked shiny and sticky. Sonia Wilson was right there next to me, and it made my brain buzz. The fairground was doing its thing around us. Every family in Hackney was out today. Every eight-year-old in the world come along just to squeal at each other. The queue for the dodgems stretched out past the barriers and onto the grass. Legs dangled from the top of the Tower of Power as it shot halfway down to Australia and back up again. The octopus was swinging streamers towards us and away. All that noise was fighting with the music, and the music was fighting with itself. It was a usual crashy, uh, crappy mashup. The Beatles mixed with Frank Sinatra, mixed with Michael Jackson, but underneath was a bass beat, thump, 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 like my heart. What if I reached over and touched Sonia's chest to see if her heart was thumping too? Damn, she slapped me from Hackney to Hawaii. I laughed. She looked around. What's so funny? Nothing really. She smiled. Yeah, it gets you that way. She finished paying for the hot dogs and offered me one. She'd squirted mustard and ketchup, a nest on mine and two straight lines on hers. I should have told her I hated mustard, but it was an S for Sonia, like she was giving herself to me. My brain cells were glowing, all lit up with bubbles of serotonin. That's what ecstasy does to you. It tickles your brains inside. I grinned at the hot dog seller, the steward, anybody. Sonia said, try it. I took a bite of hot dog and a claggy bread stuck to the roof of my mouth. You like? Mm. I forced myself to swallow. A big lump of mustard dropped to the bottom of my stomach, bread and pink sausage churning up together. My gut jumped, ready to seal itself shut. Sonia was looking at me, so I took another bite, and she nodded her approval. My brain circuits were flashing like switchback lights. Better stuff it in now, she said. When a pill kicks in proper, you won't, want to, well, you won't want nothing to eat, except maybe me. I felt myself blush. She couldn't have meant that. Those South London girls must use words differently. Apologies to any South London girls, obviously. She grabbed my hand and I was grinning again. I must look like Pac-Man. I wrapped my fingers around hers, not too tight, or she'd feel them all sweaty. That must be the drugs again, or just being skin to skin with her. We stood side by side, looking across the fair. Could she see it too? The world a bit gold and glittery? I said, I think it's working. She shrugged. You only had a quarter, Marlon, but it's your first time, and the first time's always the best. Uh, maybe I should have kept my mouth shut. I could have been like Yassir or those other wide mouths. If everything they said was true, they'd smoke their weight in weed by the time they were six. I poked my tongue across the roof of my mouth. Should I have another drink? She rolled her eyes. You're right, a quarter's just dust. It looked like I was heading towards sad case country, so I took a deep, silent breath and put my arm around her shoulders. Not too much pressure, keeping it all light. She didn't move away, but her arm stayed by her side. You're right, I said. This is much better than revision. Yeah. My mama go mental. Sonia pulled her lips down into her sad face. You're going to tell her? Course not. So what's the problem? My mum's a secret god, and she can see everything. Nothing, nothing. Look, it was a pick-and-mix stall. I still had the 20 in my pocket. Fancy some? 
No, let's get around before it gets really mad. You don't want too many people about if the pill sends you loony. I blinked. The world had turned dull again. It doesn't do that, does it? She gave a little sigh. I was joking. I've done it loads of times and I'm all right. Yes, she was more than all right. But I'd be a slick creep if I told her straight. I said, what do you fancy doing afterwards? I don't know. We haven't finished here yet. She sounded flat. I had to stop being so para. Girls like Sonia picked up on stuff like that. I smiled and said, cool, cool, it's up to you. But she must have heard something in my voice. She wriggled out from under my arm and moved around so she was facing me. Sonia's face was different from this angle, and when she smiled, her cheeks were big and round like a young kid. She held my hand between hers and squeezed my fingers. Ah, oh, yes. Now my whole head was one giant light bulb. You could probably see it from the moon. No, even further than that. 30 trillion miles away, an Alpha Centurion astronomer was wandering around that bright new speck blazing through the Milky Way. Her little finger moved up to my mouth and stroked the side. 30 trillion miles away, a lens shattered from the heat. Ketchup, she said, seriously not cool. She unraveled her other hand from mine, took a tissue out of her little bag and dubbed my mouth. Even after she stopped, it felt like her finger was still there. Why think about later when we're here now, she said. And even if we don't do anything after, we're definitely on for tomorrow. Today's like, I don't know, the starter, and tomorrow's the main course. Our fingers were twisting together again, black and white all mixed up. At least mum wouldn't be funny about me going out with a white girl. Sonny's family might not feel the same way about me, though. I had to find a way to ask her. Not now. Next time. Or the time after that. And Tish, what was she going to say when she finds out? She should be happy for me. We'll be equals. I scanned the crowds. Imagine if Big Mouth Yasir or Double Thick Ronnie were here, or Amir or Saul, or any of the other idiots. I played it out in my head. The swagger of some ride and catch sight of me and Sonia. The mouths would drop open in shock. I'd slip my hand out of Sonia's and slide my arm around her waist, all in real slow-mo, and would walk away and leave them staring. I know that sounds shallow. And yeah, she turned heads, but there's more to it. I wanted to make her laugh. I wanted to touch her arm. I wanted to know how my breath kept, kept getting stuck when she looked at me. I'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much, Patrice. That was great. Um, so the next writer we have in this set is going to be Mr. Dave McGowan. Uh, he's a writer and singer who was born and bred in East London. South East London, sorry, sorry, Dave. Um, he has short stories published in the Birkbeck Writers' Hub and in the Mechanics Institute Review, Volume 11. He's the host of In Your Ear, which is a great literary evening, held on the last Tuesday of every month at the King and Queen in Fitzrovia. Uh, and you can find out more about Dave at In Your Ear London. Okay, ready to go. Good evening, good evening, thank you. Uh, I've just come from a day-long food and wine tasting thing, so you have to bear with me. 
I write these pieces. Uh, you can find them on um, Soho Radio on Steve First, Lenny Beige's thing. Uh, they're, they're earwigging. I basically sit in bars and restaurants and buses and trains and follow people with a notebook and write down what they're saying. It's not all I do, you know. Um, so, I'm sitting on the top deck of the 172 heading south. A woman with silver hair sitting in front of me in the front seat says to her young companion, I could knit myself a better man. A gnarly old fisherman in the Dolphin in Hastings says, I used to use a candle, now I use a mobile phone. In the corner shop in Emmanuel Road in the same town, by the floral tribute, a woman in pipe pyjamas instructs her small child to put that back, you spastic. Two lads get on the train at Frant, very funny name for a place, and sit behind me. To my delight, one says to the other, I was well freaked out on my way home the other night. I was walking down the road and this car kept getting wider and wider and then I realised it was two blokes on bikes. <laughs> I'm sitting at the bar in the smoking goat, tucking into Thai barbecue with my mates Simon and Arthur. The two guys next to us don't say much, but when they do, one says to the other, I'm used to unusual sausages. There's a professional cockney in the Golden Harp in Spitalfields. He's got your standard smart barnet, salt and pepper side part and swept back. He leans in and says apropos nothing. My dad, he never went to school, but he knows everything. I'm on a 68 bus going to Herne Hill. There's a business couple, possibly office lovers, a few seats in front of me. I start writing down what they're saying, but scratch it all when the woman says, I think that bloke's writing down what we're saying. A groovy chick is lunching with a bespectacled loon in some pub in Hackney. She says, I paid £95 for lunch in London Bridge, and she right made sure she had pudding, brandy, everything, and she was still rude. Then, on the way back, she started walking like a granny, and her dog started weeing everywhere. I don't know why I bother. You don't understand, babes. She's from the country. She's all about welly liners and judgment. Some lads next to me at a party on the edge of civilization where I ended up because I hadn't really thought it through properly say, Are you sure, mate? We're sat here drinking cocktails out of jam jars next to a buffalo bin on an industrial state in East 17. A guy is mansplaining about Rome and London to his date in the window seat of my local. Then he says, Of course, Keith Vaz has always had a penchant for male prostitutes. At the bar, three young guys are jostling each other and raising their voices. The bulkiest one puts his arms around the little guy to his left and says, I call him Mr. Nice. The third lad says, what do you call me? The big lad says, I don't call you anything, mate. On Lower Marsh, a curly-haired Adonis says to his skulky companion, so I met up with this girl from the internet, yeah? And she's got a gammy leg, yeah? Then, when I wake up in the morning, she shat the bed. His companion goes, ah! He goes, yeah, 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 and you know what? I'm seeing her again tonight. 
I am downstairs at the Soho Theatre and Christine Vale is on stage. She jumps into the audience. A woman spits in her face and Christine proclaims, masculinity is dead. There are four office lumps crossing Charing Cross Road at Cambridge Circus. They've all got their jackets slung over their shoulders and pastel shirts tucked in. The most bullish looking one of them says, these kids nowadays, they're like, no one can hit me, so I can do what I want, yeah? They've, they've got us all by the short and curlers. It's like, do you want gravy on that? There's so many rules, I'd, I'd just scare the crap out of them. At the end of the bar in the craft on High Holborn, a dark-haired, dark-eyed guy is chatting with his colleagues about life in the capital. Sometimes the poverty of my existence is quite galling he adds in a peculiar, upbeat manner. A bunch of middle-aged Americans are sitting at the copper-clad table in the recess. The table is chock full of beer. One of them looks like a fat, rubbish version of James Kahn. He won't shut up. He says so many things. He says things like, some guy was murdered in my front yard. They used an iron bar. And I would love to see Trump in office, anything but Hillary. And I don't like pot. And I think war is healthy. No one else speaks. Then he bangs on about Reagan, the 60s, the Civil War, and then the fucking War of the Roses. Then he's back to ISIS and he says, these kids don't know the terrorism we grew up with. A little later, he says, I like chocolate. On the curb opposite the Lyceum, between the parked cars, a family of six, a woman and five children are settling down to a packed lunch. One of the boys refuses a proffered sandwich. The mother looks at me and says, he's never liked food, this one. A young woman pushing a buggy strides purposefully across Waterloo Bridge. She's wearing a white crop top and jeans. Her light brown hair is pulled back tight. She has a South London accent. She shouts into her phone, you called my kids mongs. A statuesque blonde woman with an aquiline nose approaches Mama Street from Seven Dials. Two little boys trot alongside her. Right, who wants something to eat, she asks. I want pizza, says the first little boy. I want a potato, shouts the other. Around midnight, oh, I'm going to leave that one. Down in Brixton, in the middle of the day, a baseball bicap septic, that's an American, uh, is pursuing an older looking chick down Cold Harbour Lane. She's heading for a row of shops and he's following her just a few paces behind. He says, Look, just because I want your number doesn't mean I want to put my penis inside you. It's <laughs> a good chat up, Lila. I'm going to use that. At the Saatchi Gallery in Chelsea, on the way out of the Rolling Stones exhibition, a couple of fusty old birds who wouldn't look out of place at a Brigham Bay sale in Worthing are descending the stairs. One says, well, all I can say is that they look like they could all do with a good cooked breakfast. <laughs> That's the Rolling Stones, ladies and gentlemen. As I'm walking through the churchyard at St Giles in the Fields, my eyes are drawn to a rough-looking fellow who's being fellated in broad daylight. Unintentionally, I catch his eye. He says, what are you fucking looking at? <laughs> Not technically a near-wigging thing, but you know. 
Um, <laughs> that happens. Um, a couple of out-of-town gay guys are walking down Old Compton Street. One says, well, here we are. The other says, my balls still hurt from the last time. <laughs> in the Pillars of Hercules on Greek Street, someone in a drunken group says, I cannot believe Lysander turned up at Shams and his wedding on a camel. On the train from London Bridge to Deptford, a man I can't see sitting in the seat behind me says, I'd rather not have love than suffer another heartbreak, to be honest. I'm upstairs in the French house in Dean Street with my mate Josh. We've been bowling about a bit. The landlady is hanging out of the window watching the huge crowd below. They are here to hold a vigil for those that fell in Orlando. There is nothing to earwig. There is only a roaring silence. Thank you. And thank you, Zelda and Stuart, for having us. Thank you very much. Well, that was really great. Thanks, Dave. Uh, so we've got a little musical interlude now. We're going to have Rory and Vivian doing a couple of songs from their beautiful catalogue for you. Uh, and then we're going to take a break after that. So stick around. They'll be on right now. May I introduce Rory and Vivian. Hello, everyone. Fits me. 
Lovely, thank you very much. That was Rory and Vivian playing their music. Uh, so that's been the first set. Uh, I just wanted to quickly thank Andy Carstairs, who's here. He's going to play you some music in the interval, which is going to be about 10 to 15 minutes long, and we'll come and let you know, let's say, 15 from now. Uh, other things I wanted to mention is do support the writers that have come here to share their beautiful words with you by buying some of their books over there. They're all discounted. All the money goes to the writers. We don't take any. So please buy books. Uh, and also, I've been asked to mention that there's a, a rally in Windrush Square this weekend of the 8th of October. Time to stand up to the council and tell them to stop closing our libraries and clearing out our arches, and destroying our communities. So if you're against any of that kind of thing, come down to Windrush Square on Saturday. Okay, enjoy the break, and we'll be back in 15 minutes. <laughs> 